Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So I was making my monthly trip into town like a uh, pioneer woman might uh, for, for the for monthly, provisions. The, the vittles. Yeah. <laughs> Doing all of the things. Uh -huh. and Okay, so I've got to get groceries. But if I'm going to be in town anyway, I might as well get that piece of trim that we needed for the RV. And then mm -hmm. if we're going to be doing that, should I go over to Lowe's? And should I get the thing that we needed to get for the thing? And also, there was that time that we needed a light bulb. So I'm going to get that light bulb. And you know, So I got all the things. Uh, but while I was in town, in my covered wagon, I spotted a truck that had one of those, like memorial things on the back of the the truck window like in oh, memoriam yeah. for a, a a recently deceased loved one exactly you see those around uh, quite a bit but it was like not a decal yeah. it was just written in green window marker what? and i just <laughs> i thought like what inspired that like i mean i get i get you know the the memorial things and the, i get that that's kind of like saying you know i care about this person but not that much <laughs> it just feels a little i mean everyone grieves in different ways sure. don't get me wrong yeah it just yeah. like did they buy the marker for that purpose was it something that they already had right i've i have so many questions a friend of mine bought a used car and it had one of those in memoriam stickers on the back of it. And he agonized over whether or not to remove it. Sure. You know, it's like, well, it's my car <laughs> Is that now. rude? Yeah, I don't want to be disrespectful, but <laughs> I really like don't want to. tombstone. Yeah, I don't want to use somebody else's tombstone. Right. It is. It's, it's, a, it's much like driving a tombstone. Well, I mean, we have on the back of our RV, the person who had it before us had a, a giant sticker of what appeared to be Jesus's face. Yes. Yeah. Um, or what we'd assume uh, it would look like. The it, dealer had taken it off as best as they could, but, but there's the, still a shadow of it. The glue that held the decal on it, it collected dust. And so you see this vague outline of Jesus's face <laughs> on the, on the back of our RV. So we call the RV the shroud of touring. <laughs> Yeah, I thought of that joke on my way to show you the RV. 
I practiced it in my head, like for hours. <laughs> oh. It was a lonely drive. That's all I have to say. You are the man for me. So what you got for me? Oh, all right. March 10th, 1991. Spring Hill police responded. Oh, I should say this is I've had a couple people reach out and be like, hey, I love your podcast, but I wish you didn't do true crime. Uh, I don't understand that. I hmm. I find it interesting like everything else. But maybe I thought uh, it would be a good idea. I can do a little like, hey, this is a true crime story. Uh just in case you didn't want to hear it, fast you're, forward. You're giving those people the finger, pretty much. Well, See, Kat has an oppositional <laughs> defiance thing about her. If you tell her not to do a true crime story, buckle up, buddy. The next six months, true crime. That's not true. I just, I, I think it suits the podcast. I find true crime interesting, you know, when it's interesting, not like, you know, yeah. Right. But um, anyway, um, I just thought I'd give you a heads up in case you want to fast forward to JG's story. I get that. No, you mine's know? true crime too. So no, no, it's not. It's okay. not. <laughs> it's not true crime at all. All right. Okay. So anyway, uh, here we go. March tenth, nineteen ninety one. Spring Hill police responded to a call about a body located on Saturn Park. I guess you would have figured it out right about the point that I got to. There was a body located on the side of the road. Maybe. Uh, Unless, you know, the body reanimated and ran off, and then the story took a whole different turn. It's a, it's a valid point. Uh, so uh, the body was found on Saturn Parkway at the off-ramp for Port Royal Road in Tennessee. Tennessee? Tennessee. The deceased white female was located at the wood line about 100 feet from the parkway adjacent to the westbound lane. So the police thought that she'd been killed in that area within 12 to 24 hours before her body was found. Spring Hill Police Captain Ron Coleman, the lead detective in the woman's slaying, said that it took about a month to ID her. He said, I had to send out fingerprints to every department I thought she could have been at. That's according to the Des Moines Register. It turned out to be 33-year-old Pamela Rose Aldridge McCall. She often went by the name Rose, and she was pregnant at the time of her death. Pamela was born in Cedar Rapids, and the family had moved to Iowa, according to a 1991 obituary published in the Newport News McCall was described by her mother as a free spirit and transient, often hitchhiking through Virginia and Tennessee, according to the Daily Press. Evidence and witness statements indicated that McCall may have been traveling with a semi-truck driver at the time of her death. Now, by semi-truck driver, you mean a driver of a semi-truck, not somebody who sort of kind of drove trucks. <laughs> I think, yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I just want to be clear. No, I'm really glad that you clarified <laughs> that. <laughs> like a <laughs> truck driver. He's kind of a semi truck driver. <laughs> Not really a truck driver. No, you're you're exactly correct. She was known to ride with one particular trucker frequently, but he was eliminated uh, because of an alibi and from his logbooks, uh, according to investigator Tommy Goats and. No suspect was named. There was DNA in the case. It was sent to the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. But again, it was 1991. Lab technicians couldn't match it uh, because they had too little uh, of sample. And also, they didn't have anything to compare it to. DNA technology was just starting to take hold in law enforcement. The databases weren't as... Uh, 
robust. And so they kind of just tucked the evidence away. And sadly, the case went cold. Until 2019, Patrolman Ty Hadley of the Spring Hill Police Department saw a book in a co-worker's office. Uh, this is, again, according to the Des Moines Register. The book was called In the Name of the Children. It was by a retired FBI special agent, and it belonged to Melissa Wilson, the department's evidence technician manager. Um, they'd been colleagues for many years, and Hadley looked at the book, and he said, I don't like true crime, but it would be really cool to solve a cold case. Was he one of the guys who wrote to you and Oddly said... Oddly enough, it was. Yeah, he was like, I don't even like true crime. Stop it already. <laughs> Unless you do the story about me. <laughs> well, Wilson said, we have one and we have a lot of good evidence on it. So McCall's cold case was reopened. The two just happened to be talking about this cold case book and it came up that there was a cold case in their city. So they looked into it, and the case was reopened. That's pretty cool. The two approached the district attorney's office for help investigating the crime. Fortunately for us, the Spring Hill Police Department still had all the evidence and the original file. This is according to Cooper. That's usually the first roadblock that they run into with cold cases is that, you know, departments over the years tend to clean house or don't take very good care of evidence. And therefore, there's maybe not even as much to work with as they had originally. That was not the case in this situation. DNA found at the scene of McCall's death was submitted to a Tennessee crime lab and a suspect profile was built. When the profile was put into a national database, the DNA came back as a match for a suspect in two unsolved homicides oh. in Wyoming. Oh, man. Those deaths occurred in March and April of 1992. The same time frame. Exactly. The, the next year. Man. And they bore similarities to McCall's death. A trucker had discovered the body of the first victim in March of 1992. Uh, near the Bitter Creek truck turnout in Wyoming, and that's according to the Associated Press. An autopsy determined that the woman had suffered head trauma consistent with strangulation and that her body had been in the snow for weeks. A month later, Wyoming Department of Transportation workers found the partially mummified body of a pregnant woman mm. in a ditch off Interstate 90. An autopsy couldn't determine the cause of death in her case, but they did find that there was an injury potentially consistent with suffering a blow to the head. Investigators weren't able to identify, and they referred to them as Bitter Creek Betty and I-90 Jane Doe. Both were believed to be in their late teens and early 20s. Wyoming Division of Criminal Investigator uh, Matt Wadlock talked to the AP and said that it was upsetting that they couldn't yeah. even figure out who these girls were. And they had to give one of them a dumb nickname like Bitter Creek Betty. That sounds like a wrestler. Well, she, well, she was found at Bitter Creek. All right. Federal authorities used forensic genealogy, which is this thing that's becoming a powerhouse right now. It's using genetic information in online databases and looking at similar cases, uh, which Cooper said eventually led them to a particular suspect in those two other cases, Clark Perry Baldwin. Baldwin had been charged with raping a 21-year-old hitchhiker at gunpoint in Texas in 1991. And the charges were dismissed 
after the state was unable to locate the victim. And then in 1997, Secret Service agents raided Baldwin's apartment in Missouri after learning that he was making counterfeit U.S. currency on his personal computer. (laughs) (sighs) What, he just scanning in dollar bills? Pretty much, I guess. He had the laziest form of counterfeiting ever. There was a story a long time ago about a guy who was uh, trying to counterfeit like $10 bills and what he was doing was actually defacing $100 bills to make them look like they were 10s. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. How? How does that even make any sense? It doesn't, does it? All right. Must have been just the thrill of breaking the law. Cost him 90 bucks every time he did it. You think you think this is a 10? You dummy. <laughs> <laughs> so here, they have a suspect. Um, it seems to make a lot of sense. Things are lining up. So the FBI secretly collected DNA from Baldwin's trash hmm. and a shopping cart that he'd used at Walmart. And tests revealed that it was a match, according to... The AP. Oh, man. That's amazing. Now, they got some DNA samples from his trash and also the handle of a Walmart shopping cart, which I bet revealed all sorts of interesting organisms. I'm wondering if the fact that now everybody is wiping down the shopping cart handles (laughs) and using hand sanitizer, it's really fucking up criminal investigators. That's probably true. There'll be no crime solved from 2020 forward. Cooper commented that they were able to collect some items without him knowing it, submitted them to the lab, and the same DNA that we had at our three murder scenes was on those items that Mr. Baldwin had touched. Wow. Baldwin was charged with murder in the 1991 death of 33-year-old Pamela Aldridge McCall and her unborn child. Baldwin, who was a long-haul truck driver who had traveled across 48 states, Canada and Mexico, was arrested without incident May 6th. This year? Of this year. No kidding. Wilson and Hadley, the two who were responsible for opening or reopening the case, commented on how without the initial attention to detail in the police work originally in 1991 and without it being... Um, maintained as well as it was, this case wouldn't have had the legs that it had. Uh, Coleman had originally put so much heart and soul into solving the case. Uh, They reported that it was full of notes, his initial report, crime scene photos, paperwork, TBI lab forms where where they had sent the DNA initially. Everything was so well documented uh, with the idea that Later on, Mm. they may be able to use what they couldn't use then. And that's that forward thinking police work that, you know, I I fucking get off on. Yeah, I know. (laughs) So (laughs) it was incredibly well preserved after 29 years and Baldwin was arrested. So Pamela's mother, whose last name was Lydell, is now 79 years old. And she was unaware that police were uh, once again looking into the case uh, because the detectives didn't want her to give up hope. No. Um, Oftentimes, if you say we're looking into it, you'd automatically think, oh, because you have a reason to look into it. But they didn't. They didn't start off with a new lead. They just started off with, well, this should be solved. So 
Marsha Ray Lydell said, I always figured I would die first. It scared me that I might go to my grave without knowing who killed her. But a few months ago, her cell phone rang, and it was Goats. It was Goats? The the detective. Oh, that was his name. Goats. I thought that'd be weird. Farm animals calling your cell phone. No. I wonder if this it comes is, up. Potential this is spam. discussing or, okay, the murder of her daughter. Yeah, I know. Let's My mind's doing stay weird things. on track. I think it's the heat. So, she answers the phone. She, this is like my big ending. This is the thing. Okay. This is the emotional kicker okay. point. All right, you're gonna you're gonna stick the landing. Okay, shh. I'm I'm gonna shut up. Go ahead. Did you get him? She asked. We're on our way to pick him up right now. As they were driving to his apartment to arrest him, they were on their way. They were on their way, and they couldn't wait to call her. They oh. were like, "We're going to arrest him right now." Yeah. Well, she was 79. Yeah. Well, that would really suck. Time is it? of the essence. <laughs> you know, they go. We're going to go get this guy. Then we're going to call her up, mm-hmm. and they get him, and they book him, and they put him in jail, and they call her up, and the phone just rings forever. And ever. What are you doing? This is the amazing, wonderful wrap up to my story. <laughs> and you're like, hey, wouldn't it be awful if no. you suck? <laughs> <laughs> I share with you the uh, the love and enthusiasm for, for cold case oh. files and, and, and law enforcement that has the forward thinking and the presence of mind to preserve evidence, knowing that maybe in the future technology will have advanced to the point where they can use it. Mm. And it reminds me of the, I think it was the story I did at one of our live shows in Nashville. DNA they had found on uh, murder victims, female murder victims from the early 80s. And they ran it through the system and they found out who that person was. One person matched like several different samples from the early 80s. And this would have been like 2007 or 8. Right. And the guy turned out to be uh, a morgue worker. And they had all those all those murder victims had been in the morgue, but the DNA samples were deposited posthumously. Right. Yeah, the guy was getting it on in the morgue. So there was that. Way to make this story about you. What about this? The whole forward thinking thing. It's kind of similar to the idea that uh, they have in the field of cryogenics. We don't have the technology right now to reanimate these bodies, but we'll freeze them. And then maybe in some time in the future, maybe it's millennia. Right. You know, the technology will be there. And I'm wondering if that's what ancient Egyptians were doing with the pharaohs. It was their version of cryogenics. Like, we can't reanimate the bodies yet, but let's preserve them to the best of our ability with the idea that in the future... We can bring them back. So you think that that is this something that you've come up with that you think they were trying oh, I, to? I totally came up with it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you think that you have a better idea than what hundreds of years of archaeologists had that they didn't figure that what your ideas that what you're positing is that you've come up with this idea. And that all of those scientists who have studied Egyptology... Sometimes it takes an outside perspective, is all I'm saying. (laughs) I looked at it with fresh eyes. This is what you're telling me? This is what I'm I'm telling you, yes. (laughs) That is what it is. 
Mummification was the best they could do yeah. in, in those days right. because they didn't have refrigeration devices. And probably in the future, when they're uh, reanimated, they won't need their brains or innards. So let's take them out. They, they just build new ones? You hadn't thought of that. This just occurred to you just now. It's hot in here. <laughs> Halfway through and you're still awake? It must be time for That Thing in the Middle. The world is a weird place. In 1660, a ship sank in Dover. Now, the only survivor was a guy named Hugh Williams. Then, in 1767, another ship sank in the exact same spot. The only survivor of that shipwreck was named Hugh Williams. Then, in 1820, a ship capsized on the Thames. The only survivor of that shipwreck, his name was Hugh Williams. In 1940, a German explosive destroyed a ship killing all but two people. The two survivors were both called Hugh Williams. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. 
when I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities. It's not for everyone. Not only is it hot in our studio right now, but a couple of hours ago, earlier today, I got a haircut and I have all those little fresh little hair clippings down the back of my shirt. Yes. And it's sticking to the sweat. And mm-hmm. I feel like I've been tarred and feathered in, in many ways. I went to get my first haircut in a really long time yesterday and uh, same thing it was very warm in the salon and a chunk of my hair came (laughs) off and got on my arm and I went to brush it away but instead of it like (sighs) brushing away it just smeared (laughs) and I was like I look like a wolf man and she had to come over with like a wet cloth and like wipe me off it was not pleasant Got a a message from uh, Mary who wrote, I've fallen down a rabbit hole of Eagles videos tonight. (gasps) I love Barney's. No, no. She says in parentheses, the band, not the bird. Oh. So she's watching Eagles live videos. Uh, Anyway, she said, whenever I look into the crowd at their live videos, I wonder... How many of those people are dead now? Oh, my gosh. I was thinking the exact same thing. We were watching Mag- uh, Goodfellas not long ago. Yeah. And I was like, how many of these people are still alive? Yeah, because that was what, early 90s? I think 91. Yeah. yeah. It's a multi-stage process for me. I do the same thing when I'm watching an older film, if I'm not sure when it's made. The first thing I do is I try to identify the period that this uh, movie was made in, usually uh, by looking at the style of the cars. Then I'll do the math. I'll say, okay, that car looks like it's like early 60s. And I'll do the math and I'll go, well, that person looked like maybe 30 at the time. So now, yeah, they're dead. (laughs) I think it's weird whenever I look at something that's from the 90s. Like, I pulled out some uh, sassy magazines from 1994. Sassy. Yeah. 
and I was thumbing through them. <laughs> uh, by the way, the cutie to look out for is Jay Moore. <laughs> oh. Really? Mm. And I was thinking, man, it's so weird that I still have these after like, you know, 10, 15 years. <laughs> yeah. um, update. Yeah. It's been longer than 10 or 15 yeah. years. Yeah. That's when your own mortality comes up and bites you in the ass. Yeah. All right, so I came across a uh, a 1979 New York Times article, Ooh. Uh, which tells a very interesting story. So I got the uh, information for this story from uh, not only the New York Times, but Wikipedia, and also I found some information on Ranker about this. Dorothy Louise Eady was born in London in 1904. She was born into a, an Irish lower middle class family. And uh, was the only child to Reuben Ernest Eady, who was a master tailor, and Carolyn Mary Frost Eady. And, and she was raised in a coastal town. Pretty typical first few years in this world as a human being. But then one day in 1907, at the age of three, Dorothy Eady took a nasty fall down some steep steps of her home oh, no. and died. <gasps> Those that were there rushed to her aid, and they tried to revive her the best way that they could. They alerted somebody to go find the doctor. They worked on her frantically while they're waiting for the doctor to arrive, but but she died. This is terrible. Wait, I'm getting she to it. She was three? She was, yeah, she was three years old. Her parents called the doctor. He got there over an hour later. By the time he arrived, by the time he did get there, not only was Dorothy not dead... But she was up and dancing about and acting completely normal, as if nothing happened. Wait, an hour is not enough time to bury someone in the pet cemetery. That's true. I thought the same thing. Um, it was weird enough that this young girl had managed to survive this fall. And I saw a picture of the stairs on the in the uh, New York Times article. It was a very steep, twisty, you know, old yeah. staircase. I can see very easily how somebody would break their neck or yeah. hit their head, and you know, could very easily die. But what was weird was not only that uh, she completely seemed fine from her fall and that she had apparently come back from the dead, uh, but now she was speaking in a very odd accent. Oh. And she kept demanding those around her to take her home in this very strange accent. Nobody could really identify what, what the accent was. Things got pretty strange for her very quickly in her life. For example, Sunday school teachers uh, sent her home and told her parents that she couldn't attend the Sunday school meetings anymore because she had compared Christianity along with a, quote, heathen ancient Egyptian religion. Oh. She was, at, a, at this very young age, drawing comparisons to Christianity and a relatively unknown Egyptian religious ceremony that certainly a four, five, six-year-old kid wouldn't know about. This is interesting. She became obsessed with all things that were involved in Egyptology. She know a lot about cryogenics? Not as much as me. Um, her parents took her to an exhibit at the British Museum in London. This was when she was just four years old. And uh, the exhibit was famous for its Egyptian antiquities collection. They brought her in. When she saw them, she got this like look of almost rapture on her face. She broke free from the grip of her mother and ran toward the artifacts. She fell at the feet of the statues and started kissing the statue's feet. She was crying in ecstasy and shouting, these are my people. Wow. 
Now, her parents are like, well, you sh- sh- you're making a scene. Stop it. It's a museum. You're embarrassing us. Right. And they said, we're leaving. And she started to yell and scream. She refused to leave. She threw a tantrum. Her parents finally got her home. But that was really the beginning. The trip to the museum was really the the beginning of um, her increasingly intensified feelings about Egypt. She started having these weird dreams. Every night, she dreamed that Seti I would come to her in her dream and talk to her. And he would show her scenes from her past life in ancient Egypt. Later, she found a photograph of a temple. And she told her father, that's the temple of Seti I. And there was no way she could have known that at that age. And it ended up to be, yes, the ruins of the temple of Seti I. And she kept dreaming about this building and she kept dreaming about Seti coming to her. And it became just an obsession. It dominated her life. She had very little interest in regular schooling, but when it came to anything that had to do with Egypt, she perked right up. She wanted to learn as much as she could about Egypt. (laughs) That would be an interesting... Uh, task as a teacher to try to fit every category of learning into Egyptology somehow. Yeah. All right. So how many pyramids do you see? (laughs) Two pyramids. Okay. So if you add two more pyramids, how many pyramids is that? You've just pillaged the ancient grave of Egyptian royalty. You're traveling on a train with all the stolen artifacts. (laughs) At 60 kilometers. Yeah, I can see where that would probably work in her case. If you're going to Cairo, are you going T-H-E-I-R or (laughs) T-H-E-R-E? So they understood, they recognized very quickly that the only way they could keep her attention was to center it around Egyptology. She would skip class, but only go to anything that had something to do with, with Egypt. During one of, a f- of the field trips that they took for Egyptology, she met famed Egyptologist, Egyptologist Wallace Budge, and he urged her to study hieroglyphics. Mm-hmm. So he, he sat her down and he took out a book of Egyptian hieroglyphics and she just started reading them. <gasps> what? That's not real. She could easily understand what the hieroglyphic cartouches were saying. That's not true. Where is this documented? It's the New York Times. I want to see documentation of this happening. I find it very hard to believe that you could just father caress yourself down a staircase uh-huh. and then learn a new language. It doesn't jibe with your vision of reality, does it, Katrina Walls? You know what? I don't like being questioned in this way. I just want you to tell the story and cite your sources. <laughs> I did. The New York Times. Shh. So her unusual behavior, it it started to freak the family out a little bit. And and understandably so. Here's your six, seven-year-old daughter who can fluently read ancient (laughs) Egyptian hieroglyphs. So they put her in a sanitarium. Oh, no. Yeah. In fact, she was confined to a number of them. But no treatment ever caused any of her dreams to go away. In fact, they started to uh, increase in, in intensity. The doctor's could not convince Edie that she was wrong about her belief of being the reincarnated spirit of an ancient Egyptian woman. So when she was 27, she married uh, an Egyptian Londoner named Iman Abdel Magid. Were they also in the sanitarium? Not in the sanitarium. I think she had gotten out oh, okay. uh, by, by this point. They had a son, and uh, Edie named the son Seti, after oh. the pharaoh who visited her in her dreams. It's also customary, it was anyway, in Egypt, women were often called by their son's names as a matter of respect. So she became, she changed her name to Om Seti. 
Oh, wait, what? Which means mother of Seti. I'm sorry. What? Yeah, well, this is ancient Egypt. I didn't know that, though. Mm, That's yeah. So when you have a son, does it does your son have to be of a certain age to change your name to? Or is it just once it shoots out of you? It just says it was not uncommon oh, okay. for, for women to do I that. I would like to learn more about that. I mean, you don't have to tell me more about that right now. I'm just saying. That's I would good, like because to learn... I, I don't have any yeah, more information okay, okay, on okay, that, okay, okay, that particular okay, aspect. Okay. Anyway, so she starts calling herself Olmseti. She was still being visited every night by Pharaoh Seti I in her dreams. And um, also, she claimed to have been visited by the ancient Egyptian god Hora or Horus. Horus recounted his past life to her in great detail. Now, he told her that she used to be a woman named Bentrishite, which means harp of joy. And she had lived in the temple of Seti I, that Seti I had built. Okay. So... Um... I'm with you. I'm 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 loving your story. Mm-hmm. Not questioning you in any way. I'm just saying. Uh, I'm just pointing out that the wording here, like she was visited by these people in her dreams. Yes. I mean, really, she just she dreamt of these people. Right. Yes. And in her dreams, she was visited in her dreams by. That's mm-hmm. how it's phrased. No, no, no. Yeah. Anyway, she was uh, told. By Horus. In her dreams, she dreamt. In her dreams. She dreamt that. that She was told that she was the daughter of a soldier and was a vegetable vendor and was given to the temple when her mother died. I guess that's what happened in those days. If your parents died, they gave you to the temple. There she was raised by a priestess. However, she and Seti I met when she was just a teen and they got it on. Oh. Yeah. She became his secret lover. Gross. Eventually she became pregnant, which carried a severe, well, many severe repercussions, not, I, not the least of which was being put to death because she had taken a vow of celibacy. You I see. just, I'm sorry. I have a little bit of a problem with you saying she got it on in that manner. Um, it just sounds gross. She got it in. Stop that. She she got it? She was a teenager. Well, but back then, pretty much ready for retirement when you're a teenager. Anyway, she uh, allegedly didn't keep her vow of celibacy. The pregnancy was an offense to the goddess Isis in their eyes. Okay. In order to keep Seti I from being publicly humiliated by their actions... She died by suicide. This is the story she claims that she was told by the ancient Egyptian god Horus in one of her dreams. Wait, did she take her own life by throwing herself down a set of stairs? No, but that's a one. And scene. And scene. In one of these visions, she claimed that she knew she was told in in her dream the exact location of a garden that existed at the Temple of Seti. No one knew that there was there was a garden there. They, there was not a garden there, as far as they were concerned. But uh, she said, no, there is a garden well, here. How are you going to have a temple without a garden? Come on. And uh, she told them exactly where to dig and exactly where to find it. And so they uh, excavated the area and they found... A bunch of tubers? A bunch of tubers. Now, I don't know what they were growing in the garden. I, I couldn't tell you. But they did find... Was it weed? The, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> remains of what was the garden of the Temple of Seti. The marijuana? The old Mary Jane? Yes, Katrina. Dank fatty nugs. <laughs> <laughs> so at age 52, she moved close to the Temple of Seti, and she continued her work as the first female draughtsman for the Department of Antiquity. Um, She was known for her amazing ability to translate 
ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs and was called upon by, by many experts in the field to help them translate. This woman has no formal college training. She just knows this stuff. Or she's an incredibly good con woman. Yeah, well. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Dara Von Sen, that's a brownie recipe. Yeah. <laughs> An ancient Egyptian brownie that, recipe. That bird with the hat there, that means, uh, and no eggs. Uh-huh. Okay. So the stories that she told, of course, got around. And people started to talk a lot about her ancient memories and so she's visiting the temple of seti the first and uh during one of those visits she was quote tested by the resident chief inspector rude he knew her reputation wanted to verify her authenticity so he had her stand near artwork and paintings in the temple without any light and asked her to identify them he was absolutely astounded when she recalled them easily and accurately, uh, according to Ranker, despite the fact that the paintings were not publicly known. She continued to work there for the rest of her professional life and helped many Egyptologists translate enigmatic and difficult hieroglyphic brownie recipes. I, <laughs> I have to say, I find this story very intriguing and I'm not exactly sure what's gone on here, but I do love that she schooled the man who thought that he was going to, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. call her out, because that's rude. I knew you'd love that part. I hate that shit. In a book called Breaking Ground, author Barbara Lesko had this to say about Dorothy Eady or Omseti. Quote, she was a great help to Egyptian, to Egyptian scholars, especially Hassan and Fakhri. She corrected their English and writing English language articles for others. So this poorly educated English woman developed in Egypt into a first-rate draughts woman and prolific and talented writer who even under her own name produces articles, essays, monographs, and books of great range, wit, and substance. She knows far more than what her formal education would indicate that she should know. She was valued for her insight, and she was asked to be in a number of documentaries uh, to showcase her expertise. The BBC uh, filmed and released several documentaries about Edie herself. Om Seti and Her Egypt is one of them. Uh, another is called Egypt Quest for Eternity, which was filmed the year of her death, which was 1982. One, I think. And and that's available on YouTube. You can you can check it out. I would like to watch that. After her retirement, her son Seti, who since had moved to Kuwait, offered to have her live with him, but she refused. She uh was dedicated to the temple of Seti the first throughout her entire life. She spent every morning and every evening praying in reverence to the gods of Egypt. Um there was no world for her beyond that country. And then on April twenty first, nineteen eighty one, um Seti. Dorothy Eady died at the age of 77 in Egypt. I've always wanted to go to Kuwait. I bet it's neat there. I can't think of any place on the planet that I could name and have you say, no, I don't want to go there. <laughs> and I'm sure Kuwait is lovely this time of year. But um, if I was going to choose between Kuwait and Cairo, I would have to go with Cairo every time. Just because I want to see if I can reanimate some of those mummies. <laughs> beginning to think that that's sure. my my destiny sure, in yeah. life. That sounds right. So there you go. That's Dorothy Eady, Olmaceti, if you will. That was fascinating. Interesting story. 
for sure. Oh, pat yourself on the back, why don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking no. God. <laughs> that was I'm... a really great story and so well told, if I do so myself. Oh, boy, you are in rare form. It must be the heat. Thanks for hanging out with us again, you guys. We love you. Check out the premium channel if you want to help support the Box of Oddities. We appreciate it. It's a great way to do it. Um, And, of course, you get the ad-free versions of every episode. You get them a day early. You get a bonus episode once a month. And you get access to the back channel, which is direct contact with uh, Kat and I. And I will be sharing on the back channel my theories on how to reanimate uh, uh, mummies using (laughs) modern DNA technology. You can get details about the Order of Freaks on our website, theboxofoddities.com. All the stuff about merch and social media is there as well. Uh, We thank you so, so much for your support and uh, reaching out to us. We've had so many cool emails and we've got so many messages from new listeners this week. And that's nuts. Yeah, we're so glad to to have you. So grateful. Welcome to the Freak family. And uh, we look forward to spending more time with you in the future. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known. That the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Taku here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.